American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Holy Hill in Wisconsin and the Shrine of Our Lady, Help of Christians. It's kind of remarkable that this place is not better known among American Catholics, considering its history and what has happened here. You're not kidding. A legend of a long-ago consecration to Mary, a mysterious hermit with a shady history who shows up, experiences a miraculous healing, and then one day, after the hill has become a site of holy pilgrimage, disappears. And then over the years, many more miraculous healings, and now it is the home of a major Marian shrine. Sounds like the foundation of another American Catholic history pilgrimage, with Milwaukee being so nearby. Right. We're we're already going to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country next year. Information on that is linked in our show notes. But with the Catholic history of Milwaukee and, right, St. Joseph Fab, which we talked about, that amazing church in episode 38, there's a lot to see and do in the land of brats and cheese curds. Mmm, cheese. One of my weaknesses. But let's talk about Holy Hill. First, the topography and the sort of hill we're talking about. So the land is generally flat. It rolls a bit, but it's more or less flat. This land was covered by glaciers, and they scraped it all flat. But here and there, as the glaciers melted, the places where holes in the glaciers would allow the melting water to drop to the ground ended up with these conical piles of silt, sand, and rock that had been carried along by the glacier. As it all fell, it would pile up like the sand in the bottom of an hourglass. This area stretching diagonally across southeast Wisconsin is called the Kettle Moraine, and the hill formation is called a came, K-A-M-E. And this particular came is one of the highest points in all of southeast Wisconsin. It's a cone sticking up about 300 feet above the surrounding ground and about 1,350 feet above sea level. So it would grab the eye all by itself. Now, crown it with a massive twin spire church, but we'll get to that in a bit. So that's the place. Let's talk about the story. The legend of its beginning goes back to 1673 and the French Jesuit missionary Jacques Marquette. Yes. According to the story, when he was based in Green Bay, he and Louis Joliet made an expedition to the Mississippi River for exploration and evangelization. On the return trip, Marquette spotted this solitary cone hill sticking up off in the distance as the highest point jutting out of the fairly flat landscape. He climbed the hill and at its summit erected a rudimentary stone altar and a cross, offered mass, and dedicated the hill to Our Lady. Then he returned to Green Bay, never to return to that hill. Fast forward nearly 200 years. A Frenchman named Francois Soubriot arrives at this hill, suffering from a partial paralysis of the legs. He takes up residence as a hermit. Area farmers notice that he's hanging around, and while at first they are suspicious, after a while they befriend him and begin to support him to a degree. They help him build a cabin and provide for some of his basic needs. One farmer eventually got his story out of him. He was a seminarian in France, but he fell in love with a girl. So he left seminary and left the country, going to Quebec to test both his vocation and his love for this girl. Kind of like you did. Mm -hmm. Hey, wait a second. (laughs) When he returned to France, he found that he was still in love with the girl, but she had not been faithful to him. In a lover's rage, he killed her and fled. Returned to Quebec, where he lived a life of disgrace, 
safe from being punished for his crime, but not without the guilt and knowledge he'd sinned gravely. He found solace in reading the papers in the library of the university in Quebec as he worked for a professor. In one of the papers, a deteriorating sheet from the diary of Marquette, he found the missionary's account of ascending that solitary cone-shaped hill in the Wisconsin wilderness. And he determined that finding that hill and restoring the altar and erecting a new cross for the honor of Mary and the glory of God would be his life's penance. So in the early 1860s, off he set from Quebec to find the hill Marquette had dedicated to Mary. But when he arrived in Chicago, an illness struck him, which left him partially paralyzed. Undaunted, he made it to the hill and ascended to the summit, crawling up the last portion of the rocky ascent. There, he spent the whole night in prayer to Mary. And when he arose the next morning, his paralysis was gone. He would build a rude altar on that spot and erect a cross just as Marquette had, and he would visit it daily to spend many hours in prayer. He lived in a cavern he had hewn out of the side of the base of the hill. Eventually, he erected 14 crosses to be the stations of the cross along the path he had worn to the summit, offering him an opportunity to meditate upon the passion of Christ as he ascended. Once the local farmers had spread the story among themselves, it wasn't long before the broader community knew of the hermit of the hill and his miraculous cure. Others began coming to the hill to ascend to that little outdoor chapel at its summit and pray for healings from their own ailments. And then, after seven years, Subrio was gone. He simply wasn't to be found in the cabin the men had built for him or anywhere else on the holy hill, though some reported seeing him here and there from time to time. Now, we should note that according to the diaries and very careful notes that Marquette and Joliet kept, it is impossible for Marquette to have been on this hill in 1673. There is evidence from the stories told by Native Americans in that region that black robes or Jesuits did come to the area and some did plant a cross on the top of the hill and pray there. So the elements of Subrio's story hold up. It just can't have been Marquette. And it seems that, based on the Indians' accounts of the actions of the black robes, the Irish and German settlers in that area regarded the hill as a holy site and called it Mary's Hill as early as the 1850s. And then in 1863, the priest dedicating the first shrine of Mary, help of Christians on the hillside, was the first to refer to it officially as Holy Hill when he called it that in his sermon. And during all this time, there is still a third story about the background of this hill and how it came to be in church hands and a site of major pilgrimage. Right. In the early 1850s, an Austrian-born priest named Francis Paul Huber was serving as pastor to local parishes when he made a prophetic statement. He was visiting a friend who lived near the hill. As he gazed on it, Father Paul Huber said, That beautiful hill yonder reminds me very forcibly of a hill near our home in my native country. I feel sure, and the day is not far distant, when that hill will become one of the most noted places in all this land, when it shall be consecrated and made holy, a place of worship and pilgrimage, when tens of thousands shall come to do homage to the Virgin Mary and her son. That is quite a prophecy. Right. So in 1855, Father Paul Huber bought the land that included the hill and intended to simply sign the deed over to the church. But before he completed the transfer to the church, he had to return to Austria. So he left the deed with a notary public whom he instructed to complete the transfer. However, Father Paul Huber died in Austria, and the notary public with whom he'd left the deed also died. So there was no official record of that instruction being given. So while there were plenty of people who knew of Father's intention, the deed was in legal limbo for a while. 
What ensued was a 21-year series of purchases, mistaken titles, quit-claim deeds, and another quit-claim deed before the land finally became property of the church in 1876. So to recap, Jesuits did come and offer Mass on the Hill, but not Father Marquette. The Indians remembered the black robes and told the earliest European settlers, the Irish, who began to regard the hill as a sacred place. They told the German settlers who came later and also regarded the hill as sacred. Father Paul Huber bought it and it took forever to get it into the church's hands. A hermit with a sketchy history shows up and reports a miraculous healing. And that seemed to be the spark that really made the place take off as a site of pilgrimage and devotion. And the pilgrims did start to come. Many of them came on crutches or with ailments of the eyes or ears, some with cancer and many other ailments. By the time the first log church was dedicated in 1863, there already was a collection of crutches and leg braces left behind in testimony to answered prayers. One nearby public house owner named Matthias Warner was interviewed by the Chicago Tribune in 1889 about the reported cures and what he had witnessed. It's actually funny how the reporter characterized this guy. He wrote, He is himself a zealous, though not a bigoted Catholic, and a man of excellent repute among his neighbors. I presume they mean his respectable non-Catholic neighbors? Right. So, anyways, Werner shared a number of stories, including a man who regained use of his long, paralyzed legs, a five-year-old child who had never taken a step but suddenly did while on the hill. A man with a life-threatening cancer on his face who experienced a complete healing. A young woman who was nearly blind from ophthalmia and experienced a complete cure. A man who had badly damaged his eyes in a gun accident and who was experiencing horrible pain. He was totally cured and many others. In 1893, the Waukesha Freeman newspaper published an account of another miracle, a woman who had a horribly painful varicose sore on the side of her foot just below her ankle. She visited Holy Hill, spent much time in prayer, and experienced severe pain for a while, and then the pain subsided, and when she descended the hill and removed her bandages, the sore was gone, and with it the pain. But potential healings aren't the only reason to go to Holy Hill. No, not by a long shot. First, there are the sacraments. And second, the incredibly peaceful and beautiful atmosphere. There are tremendous testimonies of the great sense of peace and stillness and beauty that pervades the land around and on the hill. So the Mass and many devotionals have been a feature since the earliest days. Yes. As mentioned, the first chapel was completed and dedicated in 1863. It was a 16-foot by 16-foot log structure, very simple. It had a cross on top, was plastered and painted inside, and the log exterior eventually was decorated by many people who carved their names in the logs of its walls as a sign of devotion. Local priests would take turns offering the Mass there. This log church was near, but not at, the peak of the hill. For a number of years, before the hill was fully and finally owned by the church, the government used the peak for surveying and lookout purposes. Once the church owned it, it didn't take long for the priests involved to suggest a much larger, more permanent church and to put it right on the summit of the hill. Now, this effort to begin a new church began in 1879. The road had been graded to allow horses to pull loads up the hill, and the peak of the hill was leveled and lowered about 20 feet to make a sufficiently large pad for the foundation. Bricks were made by clay found nearby, and the first church rose from its foundation. This church was 76 feet long by 46 feet wide, with a sacristy added on and an apse for the sanctuary. A gold cross glistened above the steeple, 
68 feet above the ground. This new church served well for years. Bells were added in a new separate bell tower. Better outdoor stations of the cross were erected. A grotto of Lourdes built and even more additions. Of the experience of being in the presence of that holy space and seeing this church in its place, one visitor wrote, quote, As I viewed it from the valley upon one of its unapproachable sides, a feeling of veneration akin to awe crept over me. Upon a cone-shaped peak, almost circular in form, and thickly covered to its base with rocks and tough timber, stood the church. As a landmark to guide and an emblem of faith, it is strikingly beautiful and prominently alone. Its gold cross glistens in the bright summer sun and trembles like the stricken deer in the rude winter wind. All through the long day and deep into the dark night, like a sentinel to guard the weird mysteries, it keeps the lonely watch, and when the shadows of evening spread their misty mantle of dew, it towers there still in its isolated solitude. In the 1890s, the Archbishop of Milwaukee decided to put the shrine in the care of a religious order so that it could be properly maintained and the many pilgrims who came would find the ministrations they needed. At first, he thought of offering it to the Franciscans, but ultimately offered it to the Discalced Carmelites since they had a more Marian charism. So, in 1906, the first Discalced Carmelites arrived. Within the first few years, they built their first friary and expanded the number of Carmelites who lived and ministered at Holy Hill. It was also around this time, 1903, that Pope Leo XIII declared Holy Hill a shrine and made it a site of holy pilgrimage with a plenary indulgence available for the faithful. And that means that the faithful who visit the site in a prayerful disposition, recite certain prayers, and who go to confession and receive communion worthily can obtain a complete remission of temporal punishment for sin. We'll put a link to what a plenary indulgence is in our show notes for those looking for more information. In 1925, the Carmelites took on the task of building a new, much larger shrine church. The final mass offered in the second church was on September 8, 1925, the Feast of the Nativity of Mary. Then that church was raised, and the hilltop lowered another 20 feet to make the pad large enough for this third church. The cornerstone was laid on August 22, 1926, and it took three years before the first Mass was held in the lower level. Two more years were necessary to complete the great upper church, and it was blessed and consecrated in July of 1931. The new and current church is a marvelous structure. It is Romanesque with the round arches. Perched high on its hill, it floats on a sea of trees. The twin spires rise high above the foundation, capped with crosses. The interior has marble and mosaic and everything you expect in a truly beautiful Romanesque church. And after a renovation and restoration in 2006, it is gorgeous. The centerpiece of the Mary Help of Christians Shrine Chapel, which is attached to the right side of the nave of the basilica, is a statue of Our Lady presenting Christ to the world. This statue, which is a life-sized depiction of Mary and Jesus, was made in Munich and brought to the U.S. for the Philadelphia World's Fair in 1876. It was purchased for the shrine by a devout Wisconsin businessman. And in 1878, this is back when the log chapel was still up there, it was carried up the hillside by 18 young barefoot women wearing white robes and blue ribbons. They were escorted by about 100 men on horseback and a large procession of priests, religious, and faithful from all over. The devotion of the people who came before us can be mind-boggling at times. Today, in addition to a regular Mass and confession schedule, the Carmelites offer retreats and welcome pilgrimage groups from all over. But half a million souls visit Holy Hill annually. 
But as mentioned above, the church, its gorgeous windows and marble altars and the sacraments offered there and the miraculous healings aren't the only reasons to visit Holy Hill. No, the 400 plus acres which the Carmelites own and maintain around the hill are a wonderful respite all on their own. There is a grotto, large carved stations of the cross, walking paths, and just lots of space to sit and be with God in nature. One writer describing the sense of being there, and this was back when the second church was still present, wrote, After the first frosts of an autumn foreboding has changed the color of the leaves, the scene beggars description. The foliage then assumes the brightest attire ever donned by nature, and every twig is radiant in its holiday garb. A level acre is not within the radius of the eye, and every peak and indenture has some tree or bush thrown in relief by a contrast of gaiety. All the varied hues indigenous to this lovely spot greet the eye with delight and endless confusion. The knobs are resplendent with beams from hardwood leaves, while the slopes sink meltingly subdued until they are indefinably lost in the deep red of the sumac that fringes the bottom. He continued his thought, The church is a conspicuous object to all the neighboring country. Its elevated position enables the residents within a radius of 10 miles to point the stranger with pride to the Church of Miracles, the swain who treads the furrow in the wake of his plow, and the maid who chirps her song at milking time, both pause in their task to look at this beacon of hope. And that is what the Basilica and its surrounding land remains, a beacon of hope. About 30 miles from Milwaukee, high on a hill in a rural part of Wisconsin, Secluded from the world and surrounded by hundreds of acres of God's glory, the Basilica of the Shrine of Our Lady, Help of Christians, still welcomes pilgrims, those seeking cures, those seeking solace and spiritual healing. And who knows, maybe in the not-so-distant future, it will welcome a pilgrimage group from American Catholic History. Stay tuned. You have been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, Please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review and support the work of SQPN. Your support at sqpn.com give helps make sure American Catholic history and all of the StarQuest podcasts remain available. To learn more about Holy Hill, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com history. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about Holy Hill. Holy Hill, Batman!